Oh, Father, as we now come to Your Word, we ask that You would nourish our souls with it, that You would strengthen our hearts and minds with it, that You would accomplish Your purposes with it, in order that it would not return void to You. And You have promised that it never will. And so we pray, O Lord, that Your Word would work in us. We pray that we would see that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And we pray these things in order that we may grow in Christ's likeness, that we may become more like Him in character and virtue. Teach us, O Lord, to look to Christ as our greatest hope and teach us to have joy in the hope that we have in Him. Use this time now, Lord, to strengthen Your people and to glorify Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 14. We are going to be in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3 today. Um, We've been in this book for almost three years, if you can believe that, and we've probably got a year and a half to two years to go uh, in this book. But uh, it's been a great study, I I think. I hope you've enjoyed it and been blessed by it as well. Uh, If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles out in the foyer. Uh, Feel free to take one, and if you don't already have one for yourself that you own, uh, feel free to take it home with you. Uh, But today we're going to be looking at John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. And this is really, um, if we understand the context of this passage, we understand that this is the most difficult time in Jesus' life. I don't know if we can say that it was the most difficult time in the disciples' life, uh, lives. We know that they would go on to, uh, to face martyrdom and, and very difficult times uh, after uh, they were sent out as apostles, not just disciples. But these were nevertheless difficult times for them. Uh, this chapter deals with addressing the troubles that they felt within themselves. Jesus is addressing the troubles that they had, uh, and he was preparing them for what was to come with these words, uh, which I think are very timely, because we live in very, very difficult times, times that have been more difficult than any of us probably could have imagined even a couple years ago, even a few years ago, uh, before COVID-19 hit, uh, there was a stunning number of people who were getting themselves uh, on anti-anxiety and antidepressant medications. Uh, But the advent of social media, uh, that's one of the effects of it is it makes people anxious. Uh, There are places to read about how that causes anxiety, how social media is related to anxiety and feeling troubled. Uh, It's led to an increase in anxiety and and depression. But social media was alive and well before COVID-19 hit. But when COVID-19 hit last year, it was like pouring oil on an already raging fire. Since COVID-19 started, one in every four Americans has reported that they've at least thought about taking their own lives. One in four Americans. Since COVID-19 started, antidepressant medication prescriptions are up 600%. In 2020 alone, the the year in which COVID hit us, 40% of Americans reported that they were struggling with mental health issues. That was up from 5.2% the year before. It went from 5.2% to 40% in one year, which is more than a 700% increase. A recent report noted that, quote, Americans are becoming increasingly anxious as the pandemic continues and underscores the impact the coronavirus is having on mental health, end quote. We hit a record, too, surprisingly, even here in our own county. We hit a record for the number of deaths by drug overdose last year. And that trend has even continued uh, into this year, just last weekend. Our county alone registered seven deaths by overdose of drugs. Uh, One article said this. It said last year's record in our county, 
Last year's record was a 46% increase from 2019 and a whopping 137% increase since 2010, according to the Snohomish County Medical Examiner. Nationwide, America saw 93,000 overdose deaths in 2020. That's a 32% increase from the previous year. So as anxiety is up, as depression is up, as troubled hearts abound, every sign is indicating that people are just growing increasingly anxious and depressed and that mental health is becoming a more and more serious issue in our culture. It was already a serious issue before COVID, but it's exponentially more serious now. I don't think it's a stretch by any means to say that we live in a time when the hearts of many people are troubled. Maybe you have felt like your heart has been filled with anxiety or depression. Maybe you felt like your heart has been troubled as well. Have you been struggling with things like fear and anxiety and depression and a troubled heart? Have you been struggling with these things? Praise the Lord, you're still here today if you were if you have been struggling with those things. But here's what I want to ask you. Moving forward, what is your strategy for dealing with these things? Because Christians are not immune to these things. Let me start by saying this. If, if you are on any anti-anxiety or antidepressant medications, I don't judge you at all. I, I'm not a medical doctor. I am not here to give you medical advice. I only hope to give you spiritual advice. Uh, I also recognize that depression and anxiety can sometimes have biological causes. It can be related to uh, shortages in things like dopamine or serotonin. Uh, so again, I, I'm not here to give you any medical advice, but I do believe that our passage today may even offer help to someone who has anxiety or depression that is biogenic in nature. Whatever the cause of your troubled heart may be, friends, let us remember that Jesus knew what it was like for his heart to be troubled for his spirit to be troubled. Back in chapter 12, as his hour was quickly approaching, Jesus said to his disciples, now my soul has become troubled. And then in chapter 13, verse 21, as Jesus was eating the Last Supper with the disciples, John tells us that he became troubled in spirit. We're talking about Jesus here. Fully God, but also fully man. And he even felt troubled in his heart. Jesus knew that he was about to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot at the Last Supper. But beyond that, he also predicted that Peter, the most brash and the first to speak always of the twelve disciples, he knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. And he knew that all of his closest earthly friends, all of the disciples, were going to scatter upon his arrest. He knew that the time had come for him to do what he had come to do, and that is to lay down his life as an atonement for sin. Of course, Jesus was troubled in his heart. He was, after all, fully God and fully human. But having revealed that he was about to be betrayed and having predicted that even Peter would deny him three times, the disciples were now starting to feel troubled too because not only were these things pressing on their hearts, the fact that Jesus has told them that he's going to be betrayed and that he's told them that even Peter was going to deny him, but they were also told that Jesus was going to a place that they could not go with him. Every comfort that they've had for the previous three years, during which time they followed Jesus as His disciples, all these comforts are about to be taken away from them. Of course, their hearts were also troubled. What the statistics that I just read off to you a few minutes ago reveal is that there is an epidemic of troubled hearts in our culture. And I would add that Christians are not immune to this struggle. Even Jesus wasn't immune to the struggle. And if Jesus wasn't immune to the struggle, how could we ever be so foolish to think that, uh, yeah, that, that we would have greater courage than he did? But it's all around us, friends. Anxiety, depression, troubled hearts, it's, it's all around us. We live in a time and in a culture in which 
we have more earthly comforts and more earthly conveniences than any culture has ever had in the history of the world. And yet, now that the rubber has really kind of hit the road, what we've seen is that all these worldly comforts and conveniences do absolutely nothing to assuage or to comfort our hearts. It was into this same kind of context. The troubled hearts of the disciples. That Jesus addressed the trouble in their hearts. And what He said to them is going to apply to us as well. What He said to them to settle their hearts will help us to settle our hearts as well. Even though the context is different. The, the, the trouble that our hearts faces, uh, face today, uh, it's very different from the troubling things that the disciples faced. But the point of this passage that we're going to be looking today, looking at today in John chapter 14, verses 1-3, to is that comfort is found in troublesome times by trusting in God and in His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus, who He is and what we gain through faith in Him. Faith in Jesus was the cure for their troubled hearts and it's the cure for our troubled hearts as well. Comfort is found in troublesome times by trusting in God and in His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at this passage. It's very short, but as we'll see, it's incredibly deep. Chapter 14, verses 1-3, to we read this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's very interesting that Jesus says this. It's clear that He knows what's going on in the hearts of the disciples. Which is very interesting because even back in chapter 2, when these people had a very superficial faith in Him and He wasn't receiving them as His own because their faith was so superficial, we were told that He knew what was in the hearts of men. And once again, we see that He knows what's going on in the hearts of His friends. Just as surely as He's aware of what's going on in His own heart. He's the one who's about to face incredible agony. He's the one who's about to endure the agony of the cross. Worse than that even, if our minds can even begin to, to wrap around this, is the fact that Jesus is the one who's about to endure the wrath of the Father against the sins of His people. And yet, while His disciples should be the ones trying to calm and reassure Him, reassure Jesus, He's the one who speaks words of comfort to them. Why would He do that? Because He loved them. More than that, because He loved them to the end as we learned at the beginning of chapter 13. This very short passage gives us many, many reasons to not allow the troubles of our hearts to overwhelm us and to bring us to the point of utter despair. This passage like the entire chapter, actually. This passage is something that should give us great comfort. That should give us great hope. Particularly in times like these when our hearts and the hearts of those around us are so filled with trouble. With so much fear. So much anxiety. So much distress. It's everywhere. This passage is not given to us in order to minimize any troubles you might be feeling, friends. No, it's to deal with the troubles that we're feeling. It's, it's given to assuage, to, to comfort us, to mitigate the problems that we might be feeling, to, to give us comfort even in the midst of them. We're, we're not promised that we'll be delivered from all of our troubles, but what we are promised is that God will be with us, not only on the mountaintops, but in the valleys. It's given, this passage is given in order that we may deal with with the reality of our troubles, of our anxieties, of our fears, in a way that is not only healthy, but in a way that keeps our hearts and minds in the right place, focused on the Lord. Jesus identifies their problem in the first half 
of verse 1. Their hearts are troubled, and we understand why. And the solution to their trouble, to the trouble that they have in their hearts, the cure for their distress is prescribed in the second half of the verse. What does Jesus say that they should do about the trouble that's filling their hearts? He says, believe in God, believe also in Me. Do you understand what He's saying? He's saying that faith is the solution. Faith in what? Faith in in whom? In God. In Him. And we should see here that this is clearly another place in which Jesus is claiming to be God in human flesh because He's saying that He and God and only He and God are worthy of being the object of this comforting faith. He's claiming to be equal to God. Do you see that? He's worthy. He's worthy of being the object of our faith because He is God. And when he says this, we have to understand that this isn't just some religious, Christianized flavor of positive thinking. That is not his advice. He doesn't say, just think some happy thoughts. Just speak your reality into existence. No, let's be clear about this. The Bible does not teach the power of positive thinking. No, what Jesus is doing is reminding them that God can be trusted when nothing and nobody else can be. Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We sing that one, don't we? We sing that song fairly frequently here because I'm convinced that we need to be reminded of that truth over and over and over again. How many of you can sing the chorus for Psalm 46 as we sing it from the the Psalter? How many of you can sing that from memory, the chorus? Show of hands. Can anybody sing it? God is our refuge and our strength in straits of present aid. Therefore, although the earth remove, we will not be afraid. I've got it. I, I sing... Part of the reason I've got it is because I sing it with you guys a lot. But the main reason I've got it is because I sing it to myself almost every day. Because I need that. I need that truth to cling to. There's a good reason that it's one of the songs that we sing most frequently. It's because as your pastor, as the one who's been assigned with this high task of caring for your soul, I know, friends, I know that there will be times when you need to have those words in your mind, in your heart. I know you will. I know that you will face valleys. I know that you will face trials. And that you will need some firm truth to anchor you down in those times. Psalm uh, 46, verses 1 and 2 serve that purpose very well. Uh, Nahum uh, 1, verse 7 says something very similar. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. These are just wonderful things to remember, especially if you are struggling with a troubled heart. And if, you, if that's you, if you struggle with a troubled heart, can I urge you or can I ask you to memorize these two passages, Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2? Be simple, and they will serve. Chapter 1, verse 7. They're short, they're very simple, and they will serve you well when your heart is troubled. Not if. It's not a matter of if, friends. It's a matter of when. It's a matter of when. It's a certainty. It will happen. You will need them. A.W. Pink elaborates on what Jesus is urging the disciples to remember as it relates to God. A.W. Pink writes this. He says, quote, Let not your heart be troubled, for thy Father is possessed of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. He knows what is best for thee, and He makes all things work together for thy good. He is on the throne, ruling amid the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay His hand. Why then art thou cast down, O my soul? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swellings thereof. What though trials come fast and thick? 
What though I am misunderstood and unappreciated? What though Satan roar and rage against me? If God be for us, who can be against us? Believe in God. Believe in His absolute sovereignty. His infinite wisdom. His unchanging faithfulness. His wondrous love. End quote. Whether you find comfort in Jesus' words here or not, you must understand that countless millions of people throughout the ages have. They have found comfort in his words here. Charles Spurgeon is one that you may have heard of who particularly took comfort from these words. These words are not overly simplistic at all. But they are contrary to the counsel that you will get if you seek counsel in troubled times from the world. The world will say, well, yeah, you know, if you're feeling troubled in your heart, maybe you should exercise more. If you're feeling troubled in your hearts, you need to focus more on yourself. You need to love yourself better. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to take this. You need to take that. Anything but taking your mind off of your problems and handing them over to the Lord by setting your mind on Jesus. That's counsel that you will not hear from the world. But that's the counsel that Jesus gives us. I'm not trying to be naive. I'm not trying to be overly simplistic about this, friends, and neither was Jesus. These are the words. This is the advice that Jesus Himself spoke to the disciples as their hearts were filled with trouble. Are His words true? Is His advice sufficient for them? And if it's sufficient for them, is it not sufficient for you? Either His words are sufficient or they're not. Either you believe His words or you don't. D.A. Carson asks a pointed question in his commentary on this passage. He says this, he asks this, he says, if He, Jesus, tells His followers not to let their hearts be troubled, must it not be because He has ample and justifiable reason? End quote. What is Jesus saying that will bring peace to troubled hearts here, friends? He's saying that trusting, believing, putting their faith in God and Himself, that's the cure. And what is the reason that He points their hearts in this specific direction? It's because in this direction, one will find rich, everlasting treasure, not only in Christ, but in what Christ provides for His people. That treasure is spelled out in verses 2 and 3. In these two verses, Jesus explains exactly what benefits the disciples will gain as a result of His work. And His person, as a result of Him departing from them to go to a place where they cannot yet go, He was going to prepare a place for them and He will bring His disciples there with Him one day. This should be more than sufficient. This should be more than enough to put to death any and all speculation about where Jesus went after He died, by the way. Uh, there is speculation out there about um, you know, whether He went to hell or went to heaven. Some say that uh, Jesus had to go to hell. Uh, that's not where Jesus says He's going. Uh, he said to, to, uh, to the Father, into Thy hands I commit My Spirit. And here, He says He's going to a place where He will bring His disciples. Uh, he was going to be in the presence of His heavenly Father. He, he was preparing a place for them in heaven. And for every one of His disciples, not only in this context, but throughout the ages, even until today, even into the future, for every one of His people, the closest thing that any of His disciples will ever experience to hell, the closest thing that we'll experience to hell is this world. Is this world. On the flip side of that is an equally stunning reality though. And that is that the closest thing that any who will not be His disciples, who will not believe in Him, the closest they will come to heaven is what they experience in this world. It's for this reason that Jesus had to go where they could not yet go. It's for this reason that Jesus had to depart from them. They could not come because they could not prepare this place 
for themselves. And neither can we. It's a work that Jesus had to do. It's something that only Jesus was qualified to do because only Jesus was fully God and fully man. Only Jesus was free of any sin. Only Jesus perfectly upheld all the requirements of God's perfect law. Only Jesus could prepare a place for His disciples to go. Only Jesus could do this work. Jesus wanted His disciples to understand, and He he wants us to understand as well, that the truth about the place that He has prepared for us in heaven is more than sufficient to offset all the troubles that we face in this life. Do you face troubles in this world? Jesus promised that we would. Remember that this world is not your home. This world is not our home. This world is not the place that Jesus went to prepare for His people to be with Him. In fact, this world and everything about this world, including the literal physical globe earth itself, it's all temporary. Listen to what Peter wrote in his second epistle. Peter was addressing the question, uh, why is Jesus taking so long to return? And Peter's answer was this. He writes, quote, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The question that arises here is, who is all? And how does that relate to Jesus not coming back yet. If it was just saying He wants all people in general to come to repentance, well, He he could have... Why why doesn't He just come back now? Uh, Why why not? Even though it's not going to happen, why not come back now? No, the, the question, or the answer to that question is all here refers to the elect throughout the ages. God is the one who grants repentance. God is the one who draws the sinner to Christ. God is the one who grants faith unto salvation as the means by which we receive grace. And Jesus will return once all of the elect, all whom the Father has given to Him, once they all come to faith in Him. But then Peter writes this. He gives an application that I think we would be wise to pay very close attention to. He writes this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. It's in verse 10. Talk about global warming. We are guaranteed to experience record high temperatures on that day. But, but don't miss the application that, that proceeds from there. He continues in verses 11 to 13 writing this. He says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by His burning and the elements will melt with intense heat, But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're looking for something beyond this world. This world is temporary. This world is fleeting. This world is going to be consumed with fire one day. And that's the same advice that Jesus is giving. Look beyond this world. Look beyond this life. Don't live your life just for the here and now and for what you can see. Live your life in light of eternity. Find hope in that. This is just a small sliver of the full story compared to eternity. This is nothing. Same advice that Jesus is giving here. And it's the same reason that we must trust in Jesus because this world is not our home. And because this world isn't our home, why would we cling to it? Why would we live for it? Why would we set our minds and our hearts on it? This world isn't our home. 
There's a better home that Jesus went to prepare for all who repent and believe in Him. The truth about the place that He's prepared for us in heaven is more than sufficient, more than enough to offset the troubles that we face in this life. You face troubles in this world? Perhaps we should expect it. Perhaps we should expect it. But even if we do face troubles, we never face them alone if we are in Christ. We never face them alone. Comfort is found in troublesome times by trusting in God and in His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who He is. What benefits we gain through Him, through faith in Him. Faith in Jesus was the cure for the disciples and the trouble that they had in their hearts. And it's the cure for our troubled hearts as well. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, Faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. To believe more thoroughly, trust more entirely, rest more unreservedly, lay hold more firmly, lean back more completely. This is the prescription which our Master urges on the attention of all His disciples. End quote. And now... You might hear that and say, okay, well, I I, I do believe, but I still feel troubled in my heart. I still have this anxiety. I still have these fears. I still have this trepidation and all this trouble in my heart. What do you do if that's the case? First of all, I don't intend to claim that the person who has trouble in their heart isn't a Christian. Uh, That is absolutely and unequivocally not what I'm saying. It's not something that Jesus ever said or even hinted at either. Uh, You and I have this thing called a flesh nature which causes us to set our minds and set our hearts on temporary things. It causes us to feel troubled within even when we don't really need to. But the answer here is really very simple. What do you do if, if you believe and you're still feeling trouble in your hearts? Believe more. Believe more. Is it possible for your faith to grow deeper? Of course it is. Is it possible for your faith to grow more mature, more solid? Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there is weak faith, and there is strong faith, and most Christians have moments on both ends of the spectrum. Whether your faith is weak or whether your faith is strong makes no difference in terms of you having a place in heaven. But it does make a difference, a significant difference, when you are facing circumstances that cause you to feel trouble within your heart. Can you not, when you have a troubled heart, can you not pray like the father of the sick young boy in Mark chapter 9 who said, I believe, help my unbelief? Can't we all say that? Of course we can. Because our faith always has room to grow. But to go a little further in depth, to take it beyond just a surface level, just believe more, Let me urge you, if you have already believed in Jesus and you still feel troubled within your heart, let me urge you to think about what exactly it is that you believe about God and about Jesus. Do you believe in His promises? Let's take the promise that we're looking at in this passage, for example. Do you believe that He has prepared a place in His Father's house in heaven for you? specifically for you? Do you believe that He's going to bring you there so that where He is, you may be also? Do you believe these things? Do you also believe that He's sovereign? Ah, Because sovereignty is a pillow that you can rest your head on when it feels like the world is turning upside down. Do you believe that He's sovereign? What about this promise, which is a promise that only a sovereign God could ever possibly make? What about the promise that God is using every situation you go through, every trial, every valley, every furnace, every comfort, every affliction, every victory, and every trial? He's using it all to grow you in Christ's likeness. He's using it all for your good. 
It's what he says he's doing. Do you believe him? Only a sovereign God can promise that. Do you believe that? That's what he promises in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Here's the truth. When we, when we start thinking about this, when we start understanding God's love and God's wisdom and God's sovereignty and His all-powerfulness, the truth is that whatever might be causing us to feel trouble within our hearts is ordained by God. And it's ordained not because He's angry at us, but because He loves us. It's ordained for His glory and for our good. And that even if we knew, if it were even possible, that we knew everything that God knows, we would be thankful for whatever situation we're going through. Because we'd understand exactly why. This is the only way for us to grow the way God wants us to grow. Do not think seldomly of heaven, friends. Do not think seldomly of heaven. We are bound for the promised land. Do you believe that? Do you look forward to that with incredible joy? Can you set your mind on that with a sense of excitement? Then think about it. Set your mind, set your heart on heavenly things rather than on the fleeting things of this world. Especially when it feels like this world is just being shaken to its core. Now, I remember my parents taking me camping and fishing up at a place called Cave Lake, which is just south of Ely, Nevada. It's central Nevada when I was a child. And as I grew up, this was my favorite place in the world. Uh, it still is one of my favorite places in the world. But every time we would go, I would be filled with so much excitement, so much anxiousness, happy anxiousness. I would have so much excitement that I'd go out into the backyard and, uh, or, or maybe even into the street and I'd practice casting my line just to make sure that I could still do it. Of course I could still do it, but it was what I had to do because I was so excited about where we were going to be going. I even remember one time when I was in college and my best friend and I decided that we would be going up to this place for a couple days. Uh, the night before we went up there, I was so excited, uh, I couldn't sleep. Uh, and by the way, that's, the, that's probably the only reason I can remember that specific instance. Uh, I haven't pulled many all-nighters in my life, but that was one of them. But why was I so filled with excitement? Because of where we were going to be going. I'm sure you've had similar experiences. Maybe you've taken a vacation that you were looking forward to and you spent days thinking about all the things that you were going to do when you get to that place and you were planning your itinerary in anticipation. Maybe you've moved to a new place before and you're so excited that before you move there, you start looking into all the things that you can do in this new location. Friends, if this is how we respond to going to a temporary place in a world that isn't our home, how much more should we respond in the same manner to not only going to the place that is our home, but to the place where Jesus is? Mark my words. If heaven did not have Jesus, it would not be heaven. If it was not the place where He is, it's not the place where we would want to go either. You might think that the big deal is the place. That's not the big deal. It is a big deal, but only because of who is going to be there. The point that Jesus points us to, that He draws us to here, is not the beauty of heaven, although it will be beautiful beyond our imagination. It's not even all the things that we'll be able to do in heaven, although there will be plenty of amazing things to, to do. The point that He draws us to is not that we are going to be able to see long-lost relatives or even the saints from throughout the ages in heaven. These things are all great. These, these things are all wonderful and, and glorious, but they're not what makes heaven worth thinking about. The point that Jesus draws us to, what makes heaven worth thinking about, worth setting our minds on and our hearts on, is that that's where Jesus will be. 
and that He has made sufficient provision for all of His people, for all of His disciples from throughout the ages to join Him there and to be in His presence forever. Richard Phillips notes in his commentary that there are four glorious truths about heaven that we can glean from this passage. Truths that will eclipse, that will offset the pain and the anxiety and the depression that we may have in our hearts from time to time. The first truth about heaven that we can gather from this passage is that heaven is the beloved home of the family of God. Heaven is the beloved home of the family of God. Heaven is our home. The world isn't. What do you think of when when you think of what makes a place home? What makes your home home? Home is usually a place where we have a a sense of of community, a sense of belonging to a, a greater community. It's a place that represents love and acceptance and only continual and constant comfort. Do our hearts not yearn for such a place? Of course they do. That's why the theme song for the old sitcom Cheers resounded so deeply with people. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. That sure sounds like home, doesn't it? That's what home is. But unlike the sitcom, home isn't a bar where you sit around and drink beer and hang out with with, uh, your friends and drink your sorrows away. It's heaven. It's heaven where the family of God are together loving the Lord and one another perfectly. Something we don't quite experience on this side of heaven. We experience that, just a foretaste of it, but we don't experience it perfectly. And this is one of the reasons, friends, why we gather every week and why we have to gather despite any governmental interference in doing so. Not only because God is worthy of our praise and worship and obedience, but also because church, the gathering of the saints, is a foretaste of heaven. And gathering together is only a small glimpse of what heaven will be like one day. We gather in order to keep ourselves heavenly-minded because we get distracted so easily. And we need this because, like Peter, we're so prone to wander. God has instructed that we gather not only for His glory, but also for our good. It's good for us to be heavenly minded. It's good for us to experience this foretaste of heaven by gathering with the saints regularly. The truth is that we were designed, every single one of us was designed to long for home and yet to know that this world isn't it. Our longing for home, friends, will only be fulfilled in the Father's house in heaven. The second truth that we can gather, from the, uh, he- gather about heaven from this passage is that heaven will be a permanent and eternal dwelling place. This world is just constantly changing, shifting, shaking, it's fleeting. One day this world, however, is just going to be a pile of ashes. But not heaven. Not so with heaven. In, in this sense, we're a lot like Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9 says this of of Abraham. It says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. One of the key details there that that we should latch onto is tents. He lived in tents. What do you know about tents? Well, we can say this, we know they're not permanent, uh, they're temporary. and in, in fact, we all get that, right? We, we understand that there isn't a dwelling place that's more temporary than a tent. It can be moved very easily. It can be destroyed very quickly. It's anything but permanent. But verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 11 says this of Abraham. It says, For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What Abraham was looking forward to 
was an eternal dwelling place to live in. He was looking forward to heaven. And if we're wise, we should be too. The third truth that we can gather about heaven from this passage is the spacious provision that Christ has made for all who believe in Him. In the ancient world, if a man was was very wealthy and very powerful, he'd have a big home that would have new rooms and new wings constantly being added to it as his family grew. There'd be room for him. There'd be room for his, his wife. There'd be room for their children. There'd be rooms added on for the grandchildren and so on and so forth. There would have been more than enough room for every single member of his family. And so it is with heaven. Pink notes that, quote, there will be ample room for the redeemed of the past, present, and future ages. And Ryle adds this, he says, quote, none will be shut out but impenitent sinners, sinners and obstinate unbelievers, end quote. Christ has made abundant, spacious provision in His Father's house for all who believe in Him. The fourth and final truth about heaven that we can gather from this passage is that Jesus not only went to prepare a place for us, but that He is the way to get there. I will come again and receive you to Myself that where I am, there you may be also, He says. The idea is that we can't get there on our own. We can't get there without Him. He must bring us there. There is no way to get there outside of Him. He is the one way to get to the place that He has prepared for us. In order to prepare the way, Jesus knew that He would have to go through the cross. We think of the the gruesome, the horrifically barbaric nature of being stripped of all your garments and being nailed to a cross and hung to die there and to just bleed to death. But the most terrifying thing that Jesus would face was not what man would do to Him or what man even could do to Him. It was that He had to take the sins of His people upon Himself and He had to bear the wrath of God in the place of all who believe in Him in order that the way may be clear for them to go to His Father's house. We could not enter into heaven's courts with our sin. God would not allow His courts to be defiled by our sin. And thus Jesus had to cleanse us through the shedding of His blood and by bearing the wrath of God against our sins in our place as our substitute. As Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. It is in light of this truth, and it's in the light of the eternal future that we have been promised by Christ, in Christ, that He says to His disciples and to us, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. The challenge that we're confronted with is to take our minds off of what we see. To look beyond this world. To look beyond all this stuff, the here and now. And to grasp this promise by faith. The challenge is to live our lives in light of eternity. To find comfort, to find peace in remembering that this world isn't our home. We just sung about it. The new song that we introduced just today. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. You must believe in Jesus. That's how you become a child of Zion. You believe in Jesus. That's how you inherit Lasting treasure. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, but not ours. 
What's diminishing for us, what's fading for us, is the sorrows of this world. This world's going to be a pile of ashes. This is how you inherit eternal treasure, lasting treasure, by setting your heart on Christ and believing in Him. Believing in His promises. That's where you find peace. So set your mind on His promises. Believe in Him who prepared it for you. Believe in Him who shed His blood for you in order that He may bring you to this place, to His Father's house, that you may be with Him there. This life is short, friends. This life is short. Eternity is very long. But this life is so short. And not a single one of us is promised tomorrow. So live every day in light of eternity. We should enjoy the good gifts all may be required of you. Yes, we should enjoy the good gifts that God has given us in this world. But at the same time, we must remember that this world is not our home. Jesus warned that we would face troubles in this life, but He gave us the cure for a troubled heart. Comfort is found in troublesome times by trusting in God and in His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus. Faith in who He is. Believing His promises. Faith in Him was the cure for the disciples' troubled hearts. And it's the cure for our troubled hearts as well. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You that You sent Your only Son to live a perfect life, a sinless life, a life that we have fallen short of more times than we can count. He upheld your law perfectly. He walked in fellowship with you constantly. And Lord, we long to do these things. But there are so many things that pull at our hearts and our minds on this side of glory. And we confess to you, O oh Lord, that there are times when we have trouble in our hearts because we set our minds and our hearts on the things of this world. We thank you for the grace that we have in Christ Jesus for these things. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us to live our lives in light of eternity, to live our lives in light of the promises and the blessings that we have in Christ, including an eternal home in your presence. Teach us, O oh Lord, to yearn for that day. Teach us, O oh Lord, to live our lives in light of that reality. That this world is not our home, but that our home is where we're all headed. By grace, through faith in Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.